doctrinal topics within the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. And there are questions that come in my mind. It's like, Lord, I don't fully understand this. And part of the reason is, is the doctrine that we're given is really dealing with the nation and the, the foundationally the, 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 the nature and the person of Jesus Christ and, and Jesus being God, God in the flesh. And from a finite point of view, it, it's, some things are hard for us to conceive. Some things are hard for us to conceptualize. And a lot of things we have to take by faith, going, God, you say it, and so I receive it. I don't understand it, but help me by faith to understand. And so as we go through this, my prayer is that through the power of the Holy Spirit teaching through me, that you would be uh, less confused and not more confused by the end of our, our time studying the Word together. And I've always been told to, to simply teach the Word of God. Just teach it. Just teach the Word of God and to teach it simply. And that's because God wants us to understand. He doesn't, he doesn't codify things and, and go, oh, I hope you can figure it out. But He does tell us to search the Scriptures, to dig in deep, because God's got great things for us. And as we're going through these doctrinal truths, what we're going to find, specifically seven, maybe a little more here and there, depending on what kind of rabbit trails we get into, but there are at least seven key truths to our faith that are in these ten chapters. Foundational truths, doctrinal truths, that we go, this is what we stand on, this is what we believe in. But equally important is not only knowing what we believe in, and, and what we stand on, but the why. Why do we do that? Why is that important? Why is it important for us to believe and know that Jesus is God? We've been talking about that last week as we've gone through the first chapter and into verse 2. Now we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why is it important for us to know and believe for our Christian faith? What does that mean to us? What does that afford to us? Do you know? We should know, and we should know in such a way with great clarity that we can explain it to other people when we're asked to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And that is my hope today, that as we study and look at the humanity of Jesus Christ, Jesus being fully man and fully God, we will have clarity into why that is such an important thing in regards to a doctrine, a truth, a, found, a, a fundamental faith, a fundamental part of our faith, why we believe and what we believe. And so as we look at this, last week I, I want to point out we finished chapter 1. Uh, and we made it through the first four verses of, of chapter 2. And in those verses, remember, the argument was being made for Jesus being superior to the angels. There was this thought that Jesus, perhaps, was just a spiritual being, like the rest of the angels. We know that to not be true, but there was a lot of false teaching going on, even in the early church. People look at the church today, and they go, look at how messed up it is. Well, I look at the New Testament, and it talks about the early church, and I go, man, we've been messed up from the beginning. <laughs> But Jesus, right? But Jesus. Thank God for Jesus who intercedes, who teaches us, who holds us accountable. And, and, and we still have this same false doctrine, the same false teaching going on today that Jesus is nothing more than a spiritual being, something created, you know, not equal to God the Father, not one with God the Father, but a created thing, a little G, as some people will say. And, and, and we know that's false, but as the author brings forth this argument the first thought being presented was rooted in the fact that Jesus possesses a superior name, a name far above 
a name that is given to the in, in angels. And that literally that Jesus by an inheritance, think about that word in regards to inheriting something, receiving something from his father, right? God the Father, that Jesus by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than the angels. The name Son of God. And by this, the deity of Jesus, is, which has been laid claim to, is affirmed for us in that first chapter with seven Old Testament verses. Affirmations by the mouth of God himself as quoted in the Old Testament. And it's presented for us as the main reason for why Jesus, who is the only begotten Son of God, is God's superior message. Remember, therefore, it says... Therefore, after all this is laid out, all these passages of Scripture are given, it says, therefore, my, my emphasis, it says, hear him. The author says, hear him. Listen to them. Pay attention to what he has come to say. He's a superior messenger who brings a superior message, and therefore, we should hear him. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 2, and doesn't that just reason logically? If God, and I, don't, I only propose this as a devil's ad, kind of advocate, if God really did come down from heaven in eternity, set aside all of his glory to enter into creation, to be with us, don't you think we should listen to him? I mean, it reasons to go, yeah, if that really happened, we should probably listen to what God, the creator of all things, who is all-powerful and sovereign, has to say. Think about that. Because as we move into the remaining verses of chapter 2, this argument for Jesus being superior to the angels continues. It's still the same thought. And the thought that is now being presented deals with not the deity of Jesus Christ, but the humanity of Jesus Christ. And in these verses, the author presents evidence for the humanity of Jesus, just like he had pre previously presented evidence for the deity of Jesus. By calling upon Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, and in doing so, he applies the implications of Jesus' humanity. In other words, we believe this, but what does that afford to us? Why should we believe this? How important is it? What's the value? What's the point? And so the author brilliantly demonstrates from the Old Testament Scriptures how Jesus, is fully, who is fully God, is also fully man and in this humanity, however, he is not inferior. Even in his humanity, he is not inferior to the angels. Think about it. It's a well-known truth in the Old Testament to those who, who of, the, of this Hebrew upbringing that we're speaking. But even today, we look at ourselves as humans and we, we consider the angels, these angelic beings, with all this power. And we go, yeah, we're inferior as humans. We are. We've been created a little lower than the angels. The Bible says it over and over again. And matter of fact, whenever you go to the Old Testament and you see a human being, even these great men of God encounter angels, we're told that they fall down as if they are dead men in, in just awe and wonder of, this, of the, the incredibleness of, the, of, the, of the, the angelic being and the way that God has made them. But not Jesus. This is what we're told. Even in his humanity, he was not less than the angels. Not less than. On the contrary, because of his humanity, hear this, because of his humanity, we see another aspect of why Jesus is superior 
to the angels. So, to support this point, we read in this chapter that Jesus, through his humanity, accomplished four amazing things. If you're taking notes today, this will kind of be the, the outline for our study. Four amazing things that, that ultimately that we, because of our humanity, could not do on our own. Things that Jesus, because of his humanity, did that we could not do on his own. That elevates him to the place, once again, of superior to the angels, even though he took on human flesh. The first is this, that through Jesus' humanity, we have had the inheritance of dominion restored to us. Okay? Think about back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where, where God created them, and he created all things. He put them in the garden. He said, it's yours. Tend it. Have dominion over it, over all the earth. And God actually gave man dominion over himself. And yet both of these things were lost because of sin. I don't want to get too far ahead, but that's kind of the first thought. The second thing is that Jesus, through his humanity, here's, this, is so, this is so awesome and so fundamentally fabulous. He was able to bring many sons to glory. Through his humanity, Jesus was able to bring many sons to glory. I'll elaborate on that in a little bit. The third is that through his humanity, Jesus was able to disarm. Hear this good news. Through his humanity, Jesus was able to disarm Satan. And to take victory over death. I love it that the Bible warns us about the devil. He says, beware your adversary, the devil. He goes to and fro, looking whom he may devour. The Bible says that he is like a lion looking whom he may devour. It doesn't say he is a lion. The idea is this. He's, he's a lion who no longer has claws, no longer has teeth. So the best that Satan can do is gum you. <laughs> and lastly... Jesus, through his humanity, is able to be and has become our sympathetic and merciful high priest. And I think that's a little hard for us to conceptualize because we don't really operate under a priesthood like the Hebrew people did. But think of it in regards of the high priest and his job and his ministry. You know, and Jesus is superior. He is a sympathetic and merciful high priest. We'll get into that. The point is, hear this. Looking at this is in, in contrast. Consider your humanity when we're talking about this. You as a human being. I'm to consider myself as a human being in light of Jesus as a human being. And the point is this. When we look at our humanity, I think we see weakness. Do we not? We see frailty. We see failure. But hear me, this was not the case for Jesus who was fully God and fully man and yet was sinless. He was uncorrupted by this world and uncorrupted by the temptations of Satan. In other words, Jesus is not made less by his humanity. Praise God, his humanity is not a handicap. His humanity did not darken or tarnish his crown of glory because he was sinless. And the Bible says that he was obedient to the Father in every way, even unto death, the death of, a cro of the cross. Therefore, by his humanity, Jesus, whose name is above every other name, has become further exalted. And I want to briefly point out, because sometimes when we think about, again, trying to wrap our minds around being two things, God and man, 
uh, we can come to some wrong conclusions. People have done this all down through history, and, and, and maybe we have some kind of misconceptions as well. So let me say this. It's wrong to biblically, biblically wrong to think of Jesus as merely God or merely man. Some people will think now that he's in heaven, he's God, right? But now when he's on this earth, he's man. And we have all these Old Testament appearances, these, these Christophanies, the Bible says, of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And, and it's like, oh, there's the man. And then when he's gone, there's God. That's wrong. Likewise, the, it's biblically wrong to think of Jesus as, as like half God and, and half man. Or maybe any other percentage of split that we want to kind of rationalize in our mind. Um, also, it's wrong to think of, and some people do this, and, and sometimes this, this can make some sense, that Jesus is like man on the outside, but God on the inside, right? That, that's also not true. And, and this is because the Bible is clear in teaching us, and, and part of this is just receiving it in faith, because the Bible tells us this, and we have evidence of it as through the life of Christ. It's not to say that we don't have evidence, but the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That Here's, here's, here's my, my weak attempt at trying to explain that. A human nature was added to his divine nature. And for us as human beings, we go, how is that possible? What does that even look like? What does that mean? Well, it looks like the person of Jesus. A human nature was added to his divine natures. God took on flesh. Still remain God. Fully human, fully God. And both natures exist in one person, Jesus Christ. And so with that, we read now in verse 5, for it says, he has not... Speaking of God the Father, he has not put the world to come, again, dealing with this idea of man, Jesus, and angels, right? He has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. It's always been in subjection to man. It will always be that way. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you take care of him? And really, that question is is asked in awe, in reverence, in praise. God, you've done this thing. Why? He says in verse 7, you have made him a little lower than the angels. That's the rationale. Why? Because we see that we're a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned him with glory and honor and, and, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And with that statement, the author of Hebrews says, and he goes on, for in that, he kind of gives us a little explanation, for in that he, God, put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, he says, here's the problem, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. He said, this is true, this is real, we know this has happened, but right now we don't see it. But, verse 9, what do we see? We see Jesus. And Jesus is the key that unlocks everything. He's our hope in everything. We see Jesus, who, why, he was made a little lower than the angels. Taking the form of man is what the author is saying here. He was made a little lower than the angels for the what purpose? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death, death for everyone. For it was fitting. It was the right thing. He was the missing Piece of the puzzle. You ever do a puzzle, get done, and there's like one piece missing, and you're searching all over the house to find it? 
We, we do that. I don't know why we do that, but think about it. The picture is not complete without the part that fits, the last piece, for it was fitting for him whom are all things and by whom are all things. It was fitting for him and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them, to call us brethren, brothers, family. Verse 11, underline it, saying, and what does he say? This one who is not ashamed to call us our brothers, the, the brother, the, the family member, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. Think about what Jesus did. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. Again and again. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch as they are children, and as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through fear of death who all of their lifetime are subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. Literally, we know that to mean payment for the sins of the people, for our sins. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So look back to verse 5, and we're going to break this down. And with verse 5, when we look at this, we know that the idea of Jesus being presented as a human and not an angel as the main point of these verses because of what we read in verse 5, okay? The person on the stand, so to speak, is Jesus, and it says this well-known statement of God having put the world in subjection to man and not angels. To, and to affirm this thought, to affirm that thought, that statement, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 is quoted. The author states, and he says, but let's look at what God says. Let's look at what the Word says. And it's quoted here in verses 6 through 8 to affirm this statement of truth. But listen. In regards to the application of this passage of Scripture, we're ultimately being told this, that through Jesus' humanity and the work that he did on the cross, we're now able to reign over the lost inheritance, the, the, the lost inheritance of dominion over ourselves, over creation. And in making this point, we should see the other reason for why Psalm 8, verse 4 through 6 is referenced. Considering when you read that psalm, and you know it's written by King David, you, you see that David's referring back to what we read, the truth made known to us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Go and read it, but what it simply is telling us about how God created the first man and the first woman and then gave him, gave to them the, his creation. Said, have dominion over it. And this truth, it caused David to be amazed. It caused David to marvel over the fact that God would share literally his power and his glory 
with us humans who are weak and frail. Think about that because the Bible tells us so often that all of creation, the majesty of it, testifies to the power and the glory of God, the Creator. And David said, you've entrusted this and all that it means to us? He is amazed. He's overwhelmed. He's praising God for it. So we see the application of this and how it responded to David. And David points this out by saying that God would entrust his power and glory with us humans who are so weak, who are so frail. And, and he points this out by saying that man, God, man, was created a little lower than the angels. In other words, inferior to them. But nevertheless, God gave man a far greater privilege than he's ever given to the angels, right? The angels have some privileges, they have some jobs, but God's also given man a job, some privilege. And he said, even though we're less, you've given us such a great responsibility. And at the end of verse 8, this is confirmed. Look at it. Look here. This is confirmed when it says, God put in subjection under man, all in subjection under man, and he left nothing Nothing that is not put under him. Everything, in other words, what we see. But as one considers this statement, again, this is the problem. We should see that that statement, that truth, can present a serious problem for us. Since it's obvious when we look around at the world today and creation today, right, that, that, that mankind does not have dominion over the creation, over God's creation. Man cannot control the fish of the sea. As a matter of fact, I fish and it's really hard to do. We don't have dominion over the birds of the air or the animals that move on the land. In fact, even the greater evidence of this is we, we have even a hard time controlling ourselves. Do we not? We don't have dominion over self. We've lost that. Before I was a believer, it was, the Bible makes it clear that we were all base, that we were, we were controlled and moved by the base lusts the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And even now, even as believers with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, right? Now the nature of God where we become partakers of, we still have this human nature that battles and wars against our flesh and often our flesh wins, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak in that sense. We have a hard time even controlling ourselves. And this is due to the fact that mankind, we lost, if you will. We handed over our dominion because of sin, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate from that forbidden tree. This is why we also read in verse 8, look there, but now we see not yet all things that are put under him. That's the problem. We know it to be true, but yet we know it's not the way that God designed it. We live in a fallen state. We do not yet see all things put under him. I mean, even though the privilege of dominion has been given to man who is weak and frail, at this time we do no longer hold on or possess that privilege of dominion. But even though we do not see man with this dominion at this time, right, we see, as verse 9 points out, our hope, our Savior, Jesus. We see Jesus, and he's the answer to our problem. And to fix this problem, Jesus became a man. He had to become a man. He had to be made a little lower than the angels to be like us so that he might suffer and die for our sin and restore to us the dominion that we lost because of our sin. Why? Because... It had been entrusted to man. And a man had to come back and restore what man lost. 
He was different, right? Made little and older than angels. But even though he was a man like us, he was different than us. Was he not? Jesus? In every way. He exercised the dominion that we lost. The fact of the matter is that when Jesus walked the earth, he had dominion over the fish of the sea. Multiple times he said, hey, Peter's not such a good fisherman getting his net. And they did it. You can go read the stories yourself. That's not exactly how it happened. But he had dominion over the fish of the seas. He had dominion over the birds of the air, the animals that moved on the land. He had dominion over his humanity. He had been crowned with glory and honor, the crown of glory and honor that we lost when we became slaves to sin. Yet because Jesus has regained this crown, right? Won back, bought back, purchased back what we lost, we who believe in him, we've, we've been promised that when Jesus returns, think about it in the future, we yet not see it now, but we're, we see Jesus and we know that Jesus is coming back, right? And he's coming back for a divine purpose, to rule and reign over this earth as a mighty king, as the Lord of lords. And we know that we, because of the grace of God, the Bible says, undeservedly, because of God's grace, we're going to once again share in that kingly dominion that God has entrusted us through Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, not Paul, John. John the Apostle writes about this in the book of Revelation. The story unfolds there for this of how this will all come about. But in the beginning of the letter, he lays it out. He sets the stage and he says, John, I'm John. He says, I'm writing to the seven churches which are in Asia, verse 4, starting in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. This is grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings. He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The bottom line is, hear this, if Jesus, if Jesus had not become a man, he could not have died, as verse 9 says, and tasted death for everyone. And if he had not tasted death for every, for every man and paid the debt we owed with his blood, the crown of glory, a crown of glory and honor that we had been given to have dominion would have been lost forever. Yet through his humanity, Jesus did what we could not do. Verse 10 goes on and says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, clearly speaking to the deity of, uh, 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 of God, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Again, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. That was the goal. That was the purpose and additional truth through Jesus's humanity to make him the one who did this to make him the captain of their salvation. Perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
The second thing that Jesus accomplished through his humanity was to bring many sons to glory. Literally, this, think about it. To present us as sanctified and holy before God. And Jesus did so, as verse 10 points out, by becoming the captain of our salvation. And the word captain that is used here is the Greek word archaeos. And it refers to a pioneer more. That's the idea. One who opens the way. Jesus has made the way for us to follow. One who makes the way for others to follow. The captain of our salvation. He's gone before us. In other words, Jesus has come. Jesus had come to this earth not only to show us the way, right, by example. Not only to show us the way, but to open the way. The way that takes us back to our Heavenly Father. And Jesus did so with his own death and with his own resurrection. And the Bible teaches us that when Jesus came to the earth as a man, he was made a little lower than the angels, having clothed himself in flesh. And in doing so, we read here that he gave up his glory. That outward glory, was con- that glory was concealed, if you will, by the flesh. We know that to be true because even on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a moment in time when the flesh, the humanity part of him was pulled back and, and the, the God part of him was revealed. The Transfiguration on the Mount. He gave up his own glory. He condescended. God became man to be with us. However, Jesus regained his glory. It says, it re, he's, we're told here, he regained his glory when he rose from the grave, when he ascended to heaven. And now he shares that glory with us. That's the more important thing. That which he gave up to be with us was restored. It was reestablished. It was given back to him in that sense. And really, it never departed. It was just shrouded, if you want to look at it, that light. But Jesus spoke about this himself and said in John chapter 17, as he was praying for his disciples and praying in the future for us as the church, he says to his father in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you, as you have given him the authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent he says this I have glorified you on the earth through his obedience he says I've glorified you I've represented you when people saw me they saw you I glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, listen to what he says. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Think about what he gave up for us to be with us. What he set aside, what he set behind. And yet, what Jesus goes on to say in verse 22 of chapter 17 as he prays for us and he says and the glory which you gave me he says i've given to them that they may be one just as we are one in them or just as we are one i in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me and the fact of the matter is is that through jesus's humanity He's united to us. And we who put our faith in him are united to him. Literally, we become one spiritually. 
And I know the, 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 the best earthly picture we have of this, and it's a good one, but it's the marriage relationship where God says he takes a man and a woman who are two individuals separate in every way, and he brings us together and makes us one in him through the covenant relationship of marriage. And we know that we've entered into Christ also through a covenant relationship, a new covenant, a better covenant, one founded in his blood, a covenant of grace where God does it because he loves us, not because we deserve it. And we become one with him. In fact, that's a, that's a spiritual picture that we're given all the time where, where Jesus is, takes on the, the, the role of, of groom and we take on the role as the church is the bride. And in verse, in verse 12, it points out, even in this, as this spiritual oneness is being brought forth, he calls us his brethren. And he quotes in doing so from Psalm 22, verse 22. And when Jesus refers to his church as his brethren, as his brothers and sisters, as, in, as his families, as his family members now, it means that we and the Son of God, think about this, we and the Son of God share the same nature. Think about the nature of Jesus. He and us, and we and him, one now, restored to glory, his glory. He says, I'm going to give it to them. We belong to the same family. And because of his humanity, Jesus is able to bring many sons, verse 11, and daughters to glory. Galatians 3, verse 26, affirms this saying, For we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, it also says, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but... We receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out now, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. What are we heirs of? That divine nature, if you will. The glory that is given to Christ, that he's given to us. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now the awesome thing about sharing in the glory of Jesus as sons and daughters, the application of it as it's, as it's broken out, means that one day, hear this, one day as Jesus, who is the captain of our soul, the pioneer who's gone before us to show us the way, that he will also, as verse 11 points out, sanctify us and one day with the work that has been done, present us to our heavenly Father. Think about that. We know it to be true. We've been talking about it for many weeks. That if we die, if we experience a physical death, Jesus is going to come to us. He's going to take us by that hand at our last breath, the last beat of our heart, and he's going to take us to be with the Father. And he's going to go, hey, Dad, here's my brother. Here he is. Here he is. Here I am, and here he or she is. And even more so than that, if we have the good fortune of not having to experience death, you ever think about that passage in the book of Thessalonians that talks about the rapture of the church? It says that, that we are going to be caught up together in the clouds, that Jesus is going to return, and he'll even be in the clouds, and with the sound of the trumpet and the twinkling of eye, we're going to be caught up together with him. And, and it's like, why does Jesus need to come to the clouds to be with us? Why can't he just call us up to heaven? He wants to present us. 
to present many of his family members to glory, to heaven, to the Father. Where he says, here I am and here they are. Here we are, we're home. We're home. And verse 13 illustrates this wonderful truth with another Old Testament passage of being sanctified and presented. And it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. And in this passage of scripture, the study it out, you can look at the prophet Isaiah is being instructed as he's called into ministry to not live like those who around him were living, to not live in sinfulness, but to follow God, to be separate, to be sanctified, to be set apart, that he might present himself as holy and set apart to God. And in light of this, Isaiah responds by saying, as God's calling him, here am I, and of course he was called to the Hebrew people, right? Here I am, here am I, and the children whom God has given me. That's what we're going to do, he says. Here am I, holy, sanctified, set apart, and here are your people. I will do it. I will present them to you. I will do the work. However, this passage of scripture is being used here in Hebrews has another application in its, in, in its, it's being, as it's being prophetically used in regards to Jesus, right? And the point is, is, is um, as Jesus' family members, we can have hope. And as we put our trust and our faith in him, the hope is that Jesus will present us to the Father, as sons, as daughters, as his family members. Those who are sanctified, literally those who are holy, right? We become partakers of his righteousness, the Bible says. That on the cross, Jesus exchanged through his work, through his payment, paying the debt of our sin, that he exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And so now he presents us before God the Father literally is holy and set apart to them. Not only he says, here's my family, here's our family, we're all home together, all the brothers and sisters. He says, look, they're holy, they're righteous, they're without sin, they deserve to be here, they are in me, I am in them, and, and, and they are in me, one. It's a, it's a mind-blowing, miraculous thing, but Job, not Job, <laughs> far from Job, Jude, <laughs> Jude 24 confirms this through an act of praise where it says, Now to him, praise, honor, and glory to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jesus is happy to do it. Also in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22 says, And you, me, us, who were once alienated and enemies in our minds by our wicked works, yet now he, Jesus, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Again, hear this. If Jesus had not come and became a man, he could not take us from this earth to go and share in his glory and present us to his Father in heaven. The humanity of Jesus is key. And yet, the only begotten Son, Son of God, the only begotten Son of God did so. He did become a man. And he is able. I love this. Not only is he able, he's willing. You ever met someone that's able to do something but unwilling to do it? Not Jesus. He's able and willing for you and me, for whoever will put their faith and trust in him to present us who believe in him as sons 
and daughters to glory. And the incarnation, right? This is what we're talking about. This is the religious word. The incarnation, God becoming man, is truly, guys, it's an amazing act of love. For by it, Jesus has done all the work and we get to share in all the reward. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So in the next verses, we're told about the third thing that Jesus did through his humanity, which was to disarm Satan and deliver us from eternal death. And when we look at verse 14 here, we should see that it's simply saying that because we're human, think about it, made of flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity so that he could, having become flesh and blood, right, die. Brought under the curse of death. And through, ultimately, his death, however, destroy Satan, who had the power over death. In other words, for Jesus to truly fulfill that role of big brother, of the elder brother, for the family of the redeemed, us, he had to take on flesh and blood. He had to enter into the prison to set the captives free. And this Greek word that's used here that translates to the word destroy doesn't necessarily mean annihilate. It really means to render inoperative, to make of no effect. The claws and the teeth have been removed. To render inoperative, to make of no effect. And even though it's obvious that Satan is still alive, right, and he's still up to no good, he's been disarmed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And even though Satan is a murderer, the Bible teaches us, Jesus said it himself in John chapter 8, verse 44, the fact of the matter is Satan does not have power over death. And I'm here to tell you, he's never had power over death. He's had a power in the realm of death. God alone is and always has been and always will be the final authority over death. And he exercises his sovereign power over death. And that means that Satan can only do what God has permitted. Here's, here's, where, here's where it kind of connects the dots. We know that Satan's the author of sin, right? He's the liar. He's been one from the beginning, a deceiver. We know that he's like the author of sin, and sin brings death. Wages of sin is death. But we see that in this way, Satan exercises a measure of power in the realm of death. And with this power, Satan uses fear. You ever met someone who's not a believer? When I meet believers, like, I just can't wait to get out of here and go to heaven. Right now, as a matter of fact. I mean, and we kind of speak, you know, a little facetiously about it. I mean, I think we enjoy the life that God's given us, but we know we're not afraid of death any longer. We know we live once this life is over and the life to come is way better than this life we have now, but not for a person who doesn't have the same hope that we have. This world is fearful of death. They do everything they can to avoid death, to escape death, to prolong death, to ignore death. And, and that's because Satan uses the fear of death as a weapon to gain control over a person's life. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it accurately, describes, it accurately describes Satan's kingdom as one of darkness and one of death. But when a person puts their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, they have, here's the right language, once and for all, according to Colossians. 
once and for all been delivered from Satan's power. And as verse 15 points out here, they've been released from this terrible fear, the tyranny of death that keeps us in bondage. And so even though, even though the fear of death rules as a tyrant over humanity, we as Christians have no need to fear death. Because death is defeated, and now death ultimately serves God's purpose in the believer's life. Simply put, death, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Through this, we've been given hope. We've been given victory. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, chapter 15. First Colossians, excuse me, Corinthians. Now that you're all completely confused. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. So now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because corruption does not inherit in corruption. He says, but I tell you a mystery. If this is true, then what is our hope? He says, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. All of us. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible meaning those who have died and gone before us they're going to be raised back to life given a new body an incorruptible body a body that's fit and made for eternity and we we who remain alive we too will be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on or immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written this truth that is declared there's coming a time when it will be brought to pass when death is swallowed up in victory and so the apostle paul expounds oh death where is your sting oh hades where is your victory for the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is, is law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to bring many sons to glory because he has disarmed Satan and defeated death through his humanity. And lastly, verse 17, Therefore, another therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren and brethren and 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 excuse me, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. And lastly, through his humanity, Jesus is able to be our sympathetic and merciful high priest. And these verses tell us that it's possible but this is possible because while Jesus was here on this earth, it says he was made like his brethren. What does this mean? It means that in every way, like us, Jesus experienced the sinless infirmities of a human nature. Now, we, we, we suffer infirmities as a result of our sin, but we also experienced um, sinless infirmities of a human nature, meaning this. Jesus knew what it was like to be a helpless baby. He knew what it was like to be a growing child, a, a maturing adolescent. He knew the experiences of weariness, hunger, thirst, loss, sorrow. He knew what it was like to be despised, to be rejected, to be lied about, to be falsely accused, 
to experience physical suffering, emotional torment, and even death. And all of this was part of his so-called training for his heavenly ministry as our sympathetic and merciful high priest. Sympathetic, one who knows what we're going through and yet shows mercy. And as our high priest, Jesus is both merciful, as it says here, and faithful. Faithful. Think about that. That means he's merciful towards people and faithful towards God. Do you understand the implications of that? Merciful. Not just, but merciful. He's a merciful high priest and faithful. Merciful towards us and faithful to God. This means he can never fail in his priestly ministries. He doesn't fail. He makes the necessary, he has made the necessary sacrifice for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. And more in regards to the application of everyday life, when we who have been saved, think about it, when we who have been saved are still here and tempted to sin, Jesus stands up ready to help us. Here I am, come to me. That's why the apostle James writes and he says, man, if you're being tempted by Satan, draw near to God. Resist the devil, draw near to God, and what will happen? The tempter will flee. He has to flee. Jesus stands up as our big brother and goes, oh yeah, come deal with me. We hide in his shadow. We come to his presence. He gives us strength in our time of weakness. Check, check. Okay. <laughs> a faithful high priest, a merciful high priest. And so he stands up for us, ready to help us. And because Jesus, hear this even more, because he's defeated every enemy, he's able to give us grace. The grace that we need to overcome temptation. So as our high priest, the Lord is able to give us grace to keep us from sinning when we're tempted, when we are tempted. But because he's merciful, think about this, do you always turn to Christ when you're tempted? No, neither do I. And from what we read in 1 John chapter 1, or 1 John chapter 2, the answer is here. It says that if we give in to the temptation and enter into sin, then Jesus steps in as our faithful advocate and represents us before the throne of God and forgives us when we confess our sins to him. Right? John writes, if you, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, he says. But if you sin, we have an advocate, a father, one who is faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess it. A faithful and merciful advocate who stands before God on our behalf and intercedes. And you know what, guys? Here's what it boils down to. This intercessory ministry of Jesus that we're being told of, this is the guarantee of our eternal salvation. For he is the captain of our salvation, but he's the sustainer 
through his priestly ministry. He sustains us. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to wrap up with this section of scripture. And we're going to, we're going to wrap up on this section of scripture. And as we do so, I want us to think about what we've just been told. And as we do, I don't know about you, but I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the grace of wisdom of God. Because from my point of view, from this weak, frail human point of view, it, 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 it seems foolish for God to become a man. For God, the almighty God, the creator of all things, it seems foolish on so many levels for him to become a man. Yet it was this very act of grace, this act of grace that made possible our salvation and, that, and everything and all that goes with it. Remember, the inheritance of our dominion restored to us brought back to the place of glory, the disarming of Satan's power over us and the claim that death had on us in this intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ who is our sympathetic, merciful, and faithful high priest. And all this to say that when Jesus Christ became a man, certainly beyond a shadow of a doubt, he did not become inferior to the angels, now did he? In no way. For in his human body he accomplished something that, that angels could never accomplish. And for these reasons we see, for these reasons we see that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. And the question I think that we should ask ourselves is, are we ashamed to call him Lord? Let us not be ashamed to call him Lord. And Father, we thank you for this time that we have had to study your word. Lord, I pray that we had clarity and understanding for why we believe and what we believe and what it means to us in our faith. Lord, help us to live it. Help us to walk it out as we submit to your Lordship, knowing that you've done these wonderful, awesome things for us. Lord, we love you so much. We're, we're so thankful, God. Lord, we pray, I pray that you would continue to give us knowledge and understanding of who you are as we live, Lord, in the midst of these wonderful truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand and sing a last song of worship together. Mm-hmm.